Welcome to Legal Legends of the Bluegrass, a podcast brought to you by the Kentucky Justice Association. My name is John Holland. I'm a proud Kentucky trial attorney and honored to serve as your host. We are excited to kick off this series of one-on-one interviews with legal legends from all across Kentucky. Throughout the series, we hope to provide you with a glimpse into the life of these legal legends and their practice. They together have years of wisdom, stories, and knowledge to share with you. They also share their involvement in history with the Kentucky Justice Association. Today is September 15th, 2020, and we are one-on-one with Pete Perlman in our first episode of Legal Legends of the Bluegrass. Pete needs little introduction as he has led perhaps the most fabled career of any Kentucky attorney. In addition to serving as lead counsel in cases in more than a dozen states, Pete is a proud past president of the KJA, past president of the AAJ, is a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, and is a 2017 inductee into the Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame. We hope that you enjoy today's discussion. I went to college at the University of Kentucky and then uh, uh, was admitted to Duke Medical School. Uh, Kind of an unusual journey there. And uh, while I was in my senior year at the University of Kentucky, I visited some friends at Duke that were in law school. And uh, before you know it, they talked me into applying for scholarship. Had no idea I'd get a scholarship at at Duke Law School since I hadn't planned to go there. But I applied, and uh, sure enough, a couple of weeks later, I got a call and said, you've been admitted, and uh, you are the recipient of the Southern Regional Scholarship. So I thought, man, that's great. It paid for everything. I didn't know how I was going to get through uh, medical school because I really didn't have any, any money to speak of. Uh, the only problem was I had to make a 3.5 to keep the scholarship. And none of the four that uh, got it, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, uh, actually uh, kept the scholarships, but they offered half of it back to me. I only made a 3.2, not a 3.5. So uh, then I was committed to going to law, and I went to the UK Law School, and, and it turned out great. Uh, I loved the uh, University of Kentucky. I was a graduate there of college. and student body president as an undergraduate at UK. And uh, I had uh, in mind when I went to UK that I was going to have an athletic career. Uh, But my high school coach, uh, baseball coach said, Pete, trouble with you is you're small, but you're slow. So uh, that kind of didn't hurt my feelings too bad, but I kept on trying, but I didn't make any sport at Kentucky. Uh, So I got a job uh, serving meals in the sorority houses that wasn't all that bad either uh, in, in those days. And uh, I got a job teaching driver's training for AAA. Uh, I was the first lifeguard at the Lansdowne Country Club and uh, bartended. And, and uh, that was my early days. And after starting law practice, uh, I've done it uh, for over 50 years, uh, concentrating on trial work. And I've had cases all over the country and and I really enjoyed it. So, uh, Pete, I think I read something. You uh, once you got out with your practice following law school, it sounded like you got to trying cases pretty quick. I think there was one maybe real early on. Was it L and N Railroad uh, that you got involved in on a, on a lookout type case very quickly in your career? Right, right. I, I joined a law firm uh, playing high school basketball. I was uh, in a game where Tommy Bell was a famous uh, referee, and he later did the Super Bowl and he did the NCAA championship. He was the referee in the game. And uh, 
we were playing in a tournament up in northern Kentucky, and he called a foul on me, and uh, the ball was still rolling around my foot, and I gently kicked the ball, and he said, number seven, you're out of the game. And I said, I'm out anyway, ref. That's my fifth foul. So later, when I was in law school, I ran into him on the street in front of a, a clothing store, Bowmansey's, which is no longer there. And uh, I looked at him, and I recognized him immediately. And he looked at me like he wasn't sure who I was. And I said, hey, Mr. Bell, how you doing? He said, I'm doing okay. How you doing? I said, I'm okay. And I said, are you still refereeing? He said, oh, yeah, I'm still officiating. He said, after he'd had time to figure out who I was, he said, are you still drop-kicking basketballs? And we laughed and uh, then became friends. And he was the, one of the partners of the law firm I joined. And uh, early on, uh, we were in the days where contributory negligence was a total bar uh, to any recovery on behalf of a plaintiff. And the law firm I was with, uh, they had a case involving a railroad crossing. And uh, in those days, stop, look, and listen was the law in railroad cases. And in this particular case, the, the driver had testified that he did not look because there was a uh, stop, uh, look out, uh, stop, let me see what it was. It was a uh, sea rock city from atop the mountains. And you couldn't see down the crossing because of this big sign. So he said, no, you couldn't see down that crossing because there's this big sign there that blocks your view. Nobody took the case. And my law partner, Judge Fowler, was a friend of the judge, former judge who'd originated the case. So he said, well, we got a young lawyer in the office. Uh, why don't he go down there and try it? So I went to Winchester and tried the case. Uh, obviously, the, the problem was contributory fault and also the law and railroad crossing cases. So nobody would take it. At the end of the trial, uh, the jury kind of felt sorry for the guy. Uh, so they gave him his property damage and $500 for his medical expenses, but nothing for pain and suffering. So the railroad lawyer, Charlie Landrum, who was a great lawyer, uh, argued to the judge that this is an improper verdict. If they give anything for medical expenses, they got to award something for pain and suffering. I didn't know better. And I said, I think he's right, Judge. It's an improper verdict, and they've got to award something for pain and suffering. So the judge instructed the jury to go out again and make a proper verdict. They went out again and came back 30 minutes later, and they couldn't decide, and they wanted to renew their previous verdict. So they went out the third time, and Charlie Landrum went to the bench and said, Judge, I, I insist that you instruct the foreman to put a dollar in for pain and suffering so we could all go home. Well, it wasn't meant for the jury's hearing, but they heard it anyway. So the judge said, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, would you like to retire and consider your verdict again? And one man who's obviously the foreman said, judge, I think we can do it sitting right here. So they sat in the jury box and talked for about two minutes. And sure enough, they came in with $10,000 for pain and suffering. So now the 5,000 and some dollar verdict became 15,000 and, and uh, the defense then appealed the case. Well, first they moved for judgment outstanding verdict. And the judge granted it. He said, well, he said, I just let the case go to the jury because I thought that, that they would come in with a reasonable verdict, but this is beyond reasonable. And, and he didn't look and, and contribute to our negligence bars the, bars the plaintiff for any recovery. So he entered a judgment NOV. We then appealed the case to the Court of Appeals 
And there was only a court of appeals then. There was not a Supreme Court, so we just had one appellate court. And in a classic opinion written by Justice Palmore, who was a great judge, he changed the law in railroad crossing cases. In effect, he said, if there wouldn't have made any difference whether he looked or not because he couldn't see and he was relying on the signal and it wasn't working, then the jury should properly return a verdict in favor of the plaintiff. So the, the companion case, there was a companion case because there was a passenger in the vehicle was down in Tennessee. So this judge had referred the case to the judge in my case, the Judge Fowler in, in our case. Uh, he needed help in picking a jury and trying his case and putting on the witnesses. So I went down. Well, before you know it, he realized I knew all the witnesses and I knew the facts. So he said, why don't you try the case? I said, okay. So he was my my co-counsel and we tried it. We got a, a pretty large verdict for those days. And suddenly I became a leading railroad lawyer in in this part of the country. And I was asked to speak at seminars, which I did. And, and that kind of got me started. So that's the story. And uh, every case that, that I'm going to talk to you about today, I think has made a huge difference, including that one, because, you know, if you're, if you're, hit a railroad crossing and you and it doesn't do any good to look, then why should that be the law? So literally that that changed the law and it and it was the right thing and, and I felt good about that at a very early age and, and very little experience. So that was kind of the start. And, and Pete, how um you know how fresh out of law school were you uh, at that time? I was out about uh, two years when it started and uh, really had very little experience. Uh, that's, that was about the, the time. And uh, obviously, experienced lawyers, or the people that tried a lot of cases and were known, had reputations, they turned it down. Well, I know, you know, when I went in there the first time by myself, um, I, was, I was pretty scared. You know, you, you know how to do it. You, you've seen people do it. But actually going in there and you think, you know, it's, I'm the one representing these people. I have to do this. It was, it can be scary. What advice would, uh, would you have for lawyers based on your own experience about going in there and trying these cases at the, you know, beginning of your career? Oh, it was, it was scary. The, the defense, they, I think they had three defense lawyers plus their staff and all the lawyers had been president of the state bar association. And there was me pretty fresh out of law school at, I hadn't been trying any cases, and the only lesson I guess I could teach from that is that uh, if you're in the if the facts are on your side, uh, which they really weren't, but you know I believed in the case. You got to believe in the case, and and you couldn't change the facts. And we inherited the case after uh, the plaintiff had given his deposition, so you know we were stuck with what we had, and we just made the best of it and put on a very sincere case. And, uh, and that's pretty much the only advice from that case. Pete, another case that, that I'd like to talk with you on, uh, it goes back to August 27, 2006, obviously a date that Lexington, Kentucky will never forget, and, and all of Kentucky really, uh, it was the Comair Flight 5191 crash there at Bluegrass Airport. Um, and you were one of the attorneys, um, one of many attorneys involved in that case. What, what can you tell us about that case uh, and what you learned and, and how that case changed your career? 
Yeah, I was one of the uh, lead counsel. There was a lead counsel and a trial counsel group that we were that we were on, and and it was it was a tragic case. Everybody in Lexington uh, had some connection, and we knew a lot of the people that had been on the on the tragic plane crash. Um, the case, I'm sure you remember, but it involved a uh, plane that was leaving Lexington Bluegrass Field on the way to Atlanta early in the morning. And the runway was too short. It was not the proper runway. It had no lights. And the pilot and co-pilot really were involved in, in conversation between themselves. And uh, unfortunately, we're not paying any attention. The plane went off the runway and 49 people were killed. So we worked on the case. Uh, everybody collectively worked on it, uh, collaborated, and got outstanding experts. And very close to trial, Judge Forrester, who, who did a masterful job in managing the case, ordered mediations. And uh, all but one of the cases settled uh, during the mediations. And uh, we worked, all the counsel worked together. And afterwards, some of the lawyers wanted to have press conferences to kind of promote themselves and what they had done. There were a lot of lawyers, as you can imagine, came in from other states and, and they do a lot of traveling from one state to another and involving, involving airplane crashes. So some of us, uh, particularly the uh, Kentucky group, along with myself, David Royce, Bill Garmer, uh, Larry Franklin, uh, we all said, you know, why do we want to have lawyers do press conferences? Why don't we meet with the families and, and put together lessons of 5191, which was the, uh, the number of the plane. And the families were very, very receptive to that. And we did that. And it was uh, kind of a collection of all the things that the uh, uh, airlines had done wrong and what the pilot and co-pilot had done wrong. And, and the... Uh, Newspapers and uh, NTSB and Delta Airlines all got copies of that. And the newspaper story said that uh, if the lessons made flying and travel safer in the future, then maybe all those deaths were not in vain. So I felt like that uh, that, that was a, a great experience. And again, uh, it made a difference uh, for, for people in the future. Uh, I don't think you're, you would have gotten anybody to change airline practices based on press releases, but certainly this would be a reason to do so. So I feel real proud of that, uh, my involvement in that, along with many other people. You and I have that talked about this. question, John? It does. And, and you and I have talked about this some before, but, uh, you know, I've heard you talk about the difference in a good lawyer and a great lawyer. And, uh, you know, we work on tragedies and people's lives that have really been harmed. But I know that you in particular do a great job in your cases of making sure that aside from monetary compensation, that you really fight to, to make a difference and make sure these tragedies don't happen again. Um, how could you explain that more to, to the listeners and what exactly you do at the end of a case to fight for more than just a monetary settlement? Well, okay. Um, yeah, that, that's a great, uh, great subject, and I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit. But uh, in every case, I'm not a volume lawyer, never have been. In other words, one case at a time, and, and uh, I'm very close to the families that are involved in the cases. And, and when the case is over, I just feel like that, that it's not appropriate to just put the file away and, and close the book 
there are things that we can do at the end of the case that really make a difference. Like I talked about in the Comair case, the families, the survivors, uh, they, they all were very supportive of making a difference for future people, future generations. And in, in many other kind of cases, uh, that, that's also true. I had uh, some cases involving uh, Chrysler minivans. In uh, one in, in uh, South Carolina, a lady had gone to, to a neighbor's house with her, in her minivan to get a videotape for her husband to play at church on Sunday. So she left her four-year-old daughter in the front seat of the minivan. She, went, she left the car running. She opened the door. She went to get the videotape. She came back to her. She was on her way back to her car, and her friend said, Hey, Kim, your car is moving. She ran down the driveway. Uh, the car is moving. It knocked her down and killed her and her unborn twins. And the defense was that, uh, that the uh, child maybe moved the gear shift lever. And as it turned out, we found out through, through discovery that uh, Chrysler was the only manufacturer at that time that did not have a brake shift interlock. So even if the child had done something, the car should not have moved out of, out of park and into reverse. Uh, so after the, the case was settled at trial, after the, after the settlement, uh, we made sure it was on primetime live. Uh, we generated uh, all kinds of information to the manufacturing industry about brake shift interlock and the need to implement that in, in uh, minivans. And that was done, and, and I think it made a huge difference. So that, that's an example. Uh, every case that, that I've had uh, uh, in the last uh, 15, 20 years, we've tried to do something like that at the end of the case. Pete, you obviously handle, you know, complicated cases throughout your career, um, and, and it's cases that involve, you know, I know oftentimes there will be many plaintiff's lawyers involved and many defense lawyers involved. Um, what advice would you give to attorneys about how you work with the other lawyers, whether it be co-counsel or your adversaries on a case? Well, when, when you have uh, multiple lawyers involved, obviously, uh, you have a few egos involved as well. <laughs> So you have to you have to kind of make a decision. Not everybody can can uh, do every part of the case, and so you have to kind of decide who's going to be speaking for the entire group. And uh, you know, I think that uh, sometimes through experience, or sometimes through skill, or whatever, uh, that decision is made. But uh, that's the that's the key. You have to have somebody that speaks for the whole the whole group if there's multiple lawyers involved and in addition uh, there are many roles for lawyers in cases sometimes uh, not everybody can sit at counsel table for example so uh, we've used lawyers sometimes kind of as shadow jurors you know that they sit in the courtroom throughout the day and they watch the trial and then they kind of uh, brief you as to what they saw and looking at it in the eyes of, of the jurors sometimes so uh, those are a couple of things, and uh, uh, if you have multiple lawyers versus multiple lawyers, it just looks like trial by committee, and I've never liked that. Pete, looking at your career and, and some of the cases that you've handled, it, it's fascinating, all the different companies and, and all the different incidents that, that you've handled. Um, how do you investigate a case, you know, when it, when it comes in and something horrible's happened to, to a family or to an individual? 
Um, how do you start piecing the puzzle together and, and decide whether this is a case you want to get involved in and whether someone did something wrong? Well, as far as investigation, uh, whether you take the case or not, I think the, the first thing to do is to be sure and preserve if it's a product or if it's an automobile or it's a, it's a scene, be sure immediately to document the scene, be sure that the vehicle's been preserved, be sure that everything's intact. I uh, had a, uh, a, a young lady that was injured in a bicycle uh, wreck, a, a propane truck had turned and, and cut her off and, and uh, she lost her leg and immediately the, the police came out and the trucking company came out and, and there was effort made to change the scene and move things around and, and before we even committed and were, uh, were officially involved in the case, we were sure to document with photographs, preserving the, the bicycle, preserving the scene and that's the first thing. Um, so that as far as investigation, uh, once you've done that, then I try to find if it's a product involved, try to find similar cases uh, and, and try to see what happened in those cases and, and hopefully uh, be able to benefit from what other people have done. You know, Mark Twain said to steal from one is theft and to steal from many is research. So I like to do some research. Many of us don't do enough of it in our practices. You know, something bad happens especially when a company's involved, um, there's probably a pretty good chance that this is not the first time it's happened. How, how do you go about uh, doing that type of research on your cases? Well, there's a, you know, there's Kentucky trial lawyers, used to be called Kentucky Association of Trial Attorneys, now Kentucky Justice Association. I was also uh, president of the American Association of Justice, which used to be the American Trial Lawyers Association. And, uh, they have uh, sources and um, uh, brief banks and um, product uh, safety reports, and you can get a whole lot of information from those kind of organizations, and that's what I try to do so that uh, you're not reinventing the wheel as, as you're handling the case. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. Before we get back to the second half of our one-on-one, -on -one, enjoy this message from KJA Platinum sponsor, Ringler Associates. Brad Cecil, Cindy Chanley, and Gail Kristen, sponsors of Legal Legends of the Bluegrass. On behalf of Brad Cecil, Gail Kristen, and myself, Cindy Chanley, we'd like to thank you for tuning in. As your KJA Platinum sponsors, we appreciate all the work you do. As you continue in your practice, keep in mind that we at Ringler are your objective settlement advisors. If you have problems on any part of the settlement resolution, give us a call. We are now back one-on-one -on -one with legal legend, Pete Perlman. Pete, you led um, to one of the next topics I wanted to talk about. Obviously, you've been a, probably the most influential member uh, that the KJA has ever had. There's the Trial Lawyer of the Year Award, which is named after you, rightfully so. Um, tell us about your experience with KJA and how it's helped you and furthered you in your career. Well, KJA is, is uh, terrific. Uh, if a lawyer wants to try cases, even if it's a few cases, few or many, uh, there is no organization that, that I mean, it is, it is absolutely essential to belong to KJA and to be active. Uh, KJA 
has a tremendous staff led by Marisa Fawns, executive director. Uh, they, they put on world-class educational programs. They teach lawyers how to try cases. They do focus groups. They do a lot of legislative activity to, to protect the people that, that we represent. Uh, and it's just invaluable. I, I am honored that uh, I've had the opportunity to uh, work with this, this organization. And I'm honored that they've decided to name the Outstanding Trial Lawyer for the last 25 years in my name. So uh, that's a legacy that I'm really proud of. And, you know, building off that, Pete, uh, as far as, you know, you've seen the, the jury system uh, and the civil justice system change a lot uh, throughout your 50-year career. What are concerns that you have as far as um, the trial system uh, and where we're at today as far as pursuing civil justice for clients and how that's changed? Well, that's something uh, that you and I could talk about a long time, John, but uh, my, my main concern is the uh, efforts that are being made uh, continuously to attack the jury trial. And uh, I, there are many countries in the world that have constitutions and bills of rights. And there's maybe 200 countries in the world, and, and some of the language in their constitutions is even stronger than ours. The difference is we're the only country in the world that preserves those rights by having right to trial by jury. And if we lose that, uh, that, would be, that would be just a tremendous loss to our justice system, to the accountability that we have in this country. And it would just, it, it's just essential that we fight to preserve the right to jury trial. Uh, that's the biggest fear I have. And you can see every day uh, efforts made to to affect our right to trial by jury, and that's something we've got to keep on fighting. And, you know, us as, as attorneys, um, what advice do you have uh, for what we can do to, to continue fighting, not only for our clients, but uh, also to fight for all everyone in the future to maintain that right to trial by jury? That's a good question. Sometimes I see uh, lawyers that get a little discouraged because uh, some decisions are coming down against them or uh, some courts they feel like that they're not getting a fair shake but you just got to keep on going to court uh, trying your case uh, there are new avenues and there's going to be all kinds of new areas in the future that are going to involve and need trial lawyers uh, environmental protection climate change um, there's all kinds of things that are coming on right now accountability uh, we are the ones that uh, that make certain that accountability is the is the law, and that uh, people are held accountable. Corporations are held accountable. Uh, trial lawyers are, in my mind, uh, the most important uh, part of the justice system because you make it happen. And, and Pete, obviously, you know. Since back in the L and N railroad days, uh, when you were when you were first getting involved in your trial work, things have changed a lot. Uh, but what advice would you have for young attorneys today uh, that are wanting to pursue the career that, that you've loved so much? And you know, what do you think attorneys might do to get into the courtrooms and, and learn to try cases as you have so successfully done over the years? Well, it's uh, times are changing, as everybody knows. There's not as many opportunities to try cases now as there was then. Uh, we were in court all the time. 
Uh, in addition to my civil practice, I was an assistant Commonwealth attorney in Fayette County in my early days. And I, sometimes I'd go to court and I'd have eight or 10 cases to try that day. And you really wouldn't know which one would go to trial. So that was a lot of experience. And still, uh, there's a lot of mediations now, uh, court-ordered mediations, arbitration, things of that nature. So the opportunity to go to court are not anything like they used to be. But there's still opportunities to, to, uh, to go to court uh, and even mediation. Uh, I've got a lot of good friends that have turned out to be mediators. And I think of mediation a lot like I do of a trial. Uh, you know, you go to mediation, you prepare your case. Uh, the people there are human beings. And even if it's an insurance uh, company representative, they see what your case is going to be like in court. And they report back. And we've had some uh, very successful mediations uh, as a result of that. So I think you still get ready. Uh, you got to have the mindset that every case is going to be going to trial and prepare it that way, whether it does or not. And sometimes you'll go to court, sometimes you won't. But that's kind of my advice. And I think if you prepare your case to go to trial, you will get a much better settlement than if you're assuming the case is going to be settled. You brought up a good point there, and it gives me a follow-up question. I know we were involved in a, a tire case with you Uh and there was a very, very long, I think, into the early hours of the morning, uh, federal settlement conference that we had. Um, because I think it went 16 hours. Yeah, yeah, I think it was 16 hours. Um, because mediation has become so much more prominent, um, could you touch a little bit more on, on what you do as far as mediation and how you uh, prepare your cases and what you want the other side to see from you uh, when you come to a mediation? Well, in that case, that was a uh, case of a um, young man, he was in his early 40s from uh, Cincinnati. He was an uh, executive with Procter & Gamble. Uh, he was driving through Kentucky on I-65 outside of Elizabethtown when, when a uh, tractor-trailer suddenly crossed the, uh, the median and hit him on the wrong side of the road. And in looking into the case, uh, we found that the uh, tractor trailer had fairly limited insurance coverage. And we found out that the uh, driver, who you all represented, as I recall, of the tractor trailer, am I right? That's right. Uh, he also felt that, that there was something wrong, that the steering, that the vehicle just didn't steer the way he wanted it to steer. And, and he couldn't control it as it went across the highway. So, like I said, as soon as we got involved, we, we got hold of the tire that had failed. We preserved it. Uh, we then, as the case progressed, we did some discovery and we tried to find whether there were other similar cases involving uh, tread separations and they were tread separating all over the, the roadway, as you might recall. And it turned out that the uh, we had an expert that found that the liner pattern marks were still on the tread as it separated. And, you know, without going into a whole lot of detail on the bonding process, but the, the tire is supposed to all um, meld into one piece. Well, if the tire separation marks are still on the different layers, obviously that didn't happen. So uh, we, in the mediation, 
we, we prepared for that just like we would for trial. We had our expert reports. And even in that case, where sometimes lawyers say, well, let's, let's not uh, produce our experts or our evidence until after the mediation. Let's see how the mediation goes. Well, we said, well, let's go ahead and produce our reports. And we did that without taking the depositions. And then we used our experts' reports. We saved some money by not going through all the deposition process. You know, that's, that's a very expensive process. But we had the reports, we had the exhibits, and we showed our case as best as we could at the mediation. And uh, the case settled, I think, largely because the manufacturer realized that we were prepared for trial. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I do. And it goes back to what you said earlier. You know, you you can settle cases, but uh, you're always ready to go to trial for your clients, which, which is obvious by having worked with you before. Well, last, last uh, fall, uh, I had some uh, issues, some health issues. I think I've talked to you about it informally, but uh, many years ago, I was playing racquetball with one of the UK assistant football coaches, which is probably a mistake. Uh, but he hit the ball against the back wall, a racquetball, and I turned, and the ball hit the back wall, and then ricocheted and hit the side wall, and then it hit my eye socket, and I had a partially detached retina. And I went to some doctors and wound up at Cincinnati at the Eye Institute, and they said, well, we could do surgery, but it's a little risky, and you shouldn't have any problem, except down the road you might have some problems. So last fall became down the road and I started having some problems in uh, uh, extensive reading, concentration, uh, driving at night, things of that nature. So in effect, I closed my office and I decided I'm going to do freelance rather than uh, taking a case from start to finish like I had done all these years. I really haven't done much of it because of the uh, coronavirus. And uh, who knows what, what's going to happen down the road. But uh, I missed the trials. I missed the courtroom. And somehow or other, I'm still going to be involved. Well, and, and Pete, you know, I think we're going to have a lot of folks listening here, and, and they're going to be interested in, in hearing that just like I am. Um, what exactly uh, would you offer to folks or other law offices that want to bring you in as far as a freelance-type position to, to work on cases with them? Well, yeah, that, that's a good question, and I don't really have a good answer right now. <laughs> it's just going to kind of be, I don't intend to do any advertising. I've never done any and, or self-promotion, but on an individual basis, uh, if somebody thinks I can help them, you know, I'll be glad to talk to them and, and just kind of decide what the best way is for me to get involved. And uh, for anyone interested in that, they could just reach out to your office uh, to discuss a case with you and your staff. Yeah, right now it's me. Okay. <laughs> One man show. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of having a good time. I've done this uh, podcast with you. I've been on a couple of, I've given a couple of speeches and seminars. And um, I mean, I'm kind of enjoying the, the break and uh, courts are closed anyway right now. So uh, who knows, but I've enjoyed my career and uh, it's been a lot of fun. And I feel like that, uh, uh, I've helped a lot of people, and if I can help young lawyers or older lawyers through this podcast, I'm, I'm honored that you considered doing it with me. Yeah, and, and that brings me to my last question. Um, you know, we obviously are in a tough profession, 
the legal profession in general uh, with trial lawyers, even on the more extreme end. It's stressful, it's long hours. You've had a very successful career that, that's lasted a long time. What advice would you have uh, for attorneys in this business? You know, not necessarily practicing cases, but outside of, the, outside of your work, um, you know, how to take care of yourself and, and how to make your career last long and successful like you have. Well, uh, you know, I, I try to stay physically in shape. I work out the best I can. I'm, I'm still doing that. Uh, as far as uh, the, the excitement of, of doing what you do, uh, I don't think anything is more exciting than the opportunity to represent a family or a person and uh, to, to make a big difference in their lives. <clears throat> um, that's my advice. Uh, be true to yourself. Uh, people's reputation uh, stays with them as, as they get, as they go uh, down the road. Uh, I think sometimes uh, there's temptation to, to maybe not be totally honest and to fudge a little bit, stretch things a little bit. And uh, the best I can, best advice I can give is, is don't do it. Just be honest, be true, and, and let your word be your bond. Pete, on behalf of myself and everyone of KJA, um, thank you for everything that you've done for us all. You've certainly paved the road for us to be able to try cases and have somebody to look up to uh, in Kentucky for us all. So thank you, and thank you for your time today. Thank you, John. It's an honor to be, be with you guys. Thank you for listening to Legal Legends of the Bluegrass. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for our next episode featuring Charlie Moore.